You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. For those of you who don't know, my name's Royce. I'm one of the elders here at Red Sea, and, and my I'm bivocational in that I'm an elder here, a leader here at Red Sea, but my primary vocation, my primary job is that I work at an organization, an association of churches called CB Northwest. It's a 255, 260 churches in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Alaska. I'm one of the directors there. I'm the director, my title is Director of Convergence, which doesn't mean much to anybody. I'm the Director of Leadership Development. I'm one of a team of directors. And a little while ago, we were having a staff meeting, as we, as we regularly do, and in the staff meeting, we were being briefed on a situation with a church that we had been called into to reconcile two leaders in the church. The basic issue was that the pastor uh, um, and one of the leaders was in conflict because the pastor had decided not to do something that he had been asked to do, uh, and the other leader thought he should do it, and, and the pastor didn't do it. And the leader was upset that he hadn't done it. Now, it was within the pastor's prerogative not to do it. It was his choice. But the other leader insisted that it was the wrong choice and that he should do it. And this disagreement between them had turned into a constant tension. And then that constant tension had turned into actual adversarial actions between them towards each other. And now it had turned into a divisiveness within the church. Thus, they called us in. And I'm like, in listening to this, I'm like, wait, wait, time out, time out, back up. I, I, I must have missed something here in this whole scenario. What, what, was it? what had happened again? What happened? And they recounted the, the issue. And I said, this is ridiculous. This is childish. How, how did we go from two guys, two leaders in the church, just disagreeing about something that was optional, and now we're here intermediating that maybe holding the church together? How, did, how does that happen? And Mark Hafner, the executive director of CB Northwest and, and my boss, I came out with one of his words of wisdom, one of his insights that is worth remembering. In fact, I have told my my staff, the guys who work with me, that when you're around Mark, bring a pad and pen because he's going to say something inevitably that is worth writing down. This was one of those. As we're doing it, I'm like, I'm getting, you know, a little annoyed. Like, how is it they do this? And Mark comes out with his spot on insight. He says this. He says, they got to this point because they both care more about being right than they do about their relationships. Hear that? He says, he says, they got to this point because they both care more about being right than they do about their relationships. Mark said it's something, he went on and said, this is something he sees all the time. Being right was more important than relationships, even the relationships that it's disturbing and sometimes even destroying. Whether he says it's in churches or marriages or families or businesses or organizations, wherever there's people, often the reason there's animosity and hostility is because they're more concerned with being right than relationships. This is a frequent and and significant cause of alienation and hostility among people. It's being right more than relationships. It's also one of the significant and frequent barriers to reconciliation. People insist they need to be right, and people, other people need to recognize them that, even at the expense of the relationship. So reconciliation doesn't happen. Have you observed this in your life? 
When I read his phrase, a number of you nodded affirmative. So obviously this isn't a strange thing. Okay? Have you, have you experienced this in your relationships? Have you struggled with this yourself? Think about the tension, the arguments, the conflicts, the even breaks in relationships that you know about, or maybe again, that you've been a part of personally, and the root cause of it, that people care more about being right than the relationship itself. If this is true, and I'm confident that you would agree that it is, it begs the question, how do we reverse this? How do we reverse this? Once it's happened, how do we reverse it? How do we care more about relationships than being right? Not just theoretically, not just in principle, but practically. How do we actually demonstrate that this is true and treat other people the way this is true? Today we're going to look at a letter that Paul wrote that's often overlooked. It's in the back of the New Testament. And it's a letter that he wrote to a man named Philemon. A man named Philemon. It's only, like I said, it's, only 20, it's a letter. It's only 24 verses. In his letter to Philemon, we observe three intentional steps that Paul takes to reconcile Philemon and a runaway slave named Onesimus. Paul helps Philemon to value his relationship with Onesimus more than his right, being right because he had been wronged and ripped off by Onesimus. Now, before we read the letter, I want to just sort of set the stage of the story so that when he reads, we read the letter, you'll understand what's happening. Philemon was a wealthy Christian who lived in the city of Colossae. Colossae is in, we now know, is about area of Turkey, and, he, um, and it's about 100 miles from Ephesus. Paul spent three years in Ephesus, and during that ministry in Ephesus, somehow, we're not told explicitly how, Philemon came in contact with Paul in the gospel. We assume that Philemon, as a wealthy businessman, went to Ephesus, and he heard the gospel, he became a Christian, and under Paul's ministry. And Philemon grew as a Christian, and he became very generous in his relationships, even to the point of hosting a church in his home. We have to remember that in the, back in the days of the early centuries, they didn't have church buildings like this. They met in homes, and usually big homes of wealthy people. Philemon was one of those people. He had a bondservant, a servant named Onesimus. And um, exactly um, how and why Onesimus was a bondservant to Philemon, we don't know the details. Usually a bondservant servant is someone who serves a master to pay off a debt. Whether his, his family had that in debt, he's a part of it, or he incurred the debt, we don't know, but usually that's what they were doing. So Onesimus was his bondservant. For some unknown reason, again, we, nobody explicitly says in the letters, Onesimus ran away, apparently robbing Philemon when he left. He's, we don't know if he took money or property, but providentially he ends up in Rome and he meets Paul who's in prison. Obviously, God's hand is in that, and Paul even acknowledges that in his letter. And like Philemon, Paul leads Onesimus to Christ and for a time disciples him. And sometime later, whether initiated by Paul or Onesimus self, we don't know, they decide that Onesimus must personally return to Colossae to be reconciled to Philemon. He must do it in person. And, and since Onesimus is going to Colossae to meet with Philemon, Paul, you can't leave prison, Paul's in prison, he writes a letter to Philemon to explain some things, and we have that letter. And that's what we're going to read right now. So I'm going to ask that you stand, and we're going to have, read this, this. On the screen will be the scripture of Philemon, uh, scripture of the, Paul's letter to Philemon, 
Um, and it's a, not only a letter to them, but as we'll see in a few minutes, it's also a letter, a word from God to us today. Hear the words of the Lord. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the search in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to me, or to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. <clears throat> but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while that might have him back forever. No longer as in the bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, to say nothing of your own me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, a letter written so, many, so long ago, but yet a letter by your providential work of your spirit and your scripture written to us. I pray that our hearts, our minds would be receptive to it, and we just thank you for it in your name. Amen. You may be seated. In this letter to Philemon, Paul does three things to model the steps of reconciliation that we should pay attention to. And before I get there, I just want to say that some of the, the kids here have notebooks, and for you note-takers, the adults who take notes too, I just want to say that um, a couple things. One is, um, we sometimes, Josh and I get used to preaching and talking about things and using a vocabulary sometimes that we just assume everybody else knows about. 
and we use words to us carry a lot of meaning, and we assume if we throw it out there that it has the same meaning for everybody. So I just want to encourage, again, the kids who are taking notes, using your workbooks, or even you adults, this is that you would be if, humble enough, if I can be blunt, to say, if you don't know what a word means, we'd love you to ask us, okay? We assume some things, and I don't want to do that. For example, we're going to talk about reconciliation today. It's a, it's a word that we throw around assuming that everybody knows what it means. But as I thought about it this week, we, we might not know what it means. And quite simply, for those who aren't sure, and for those of us who are sure but need to be reminded, Reconciliation simply is that there are two people, or two parties, but we'll say people, who are separated, who are facing away from each other because something has happened. Some event or, or event has happened that caused them to fa- turn away from each other. And reconciliation is you remove whatever that cause is so they can turn and be reconnected, reconciled. So when we talk about people being reconciled, it means that they were angry with each other or hurt, and now they can whatever causes that can be removed, and they can then be face-to-face. The same with us and God. When we're reconciled to God, it means that the sin that keeps us away from God has been removed, and we now can be reconnected to God. So we're going to be talking about being reconciled, reconciliation. I just wanted uh, to throw that out there, define that term, and also encourage you, if you run across other terms we use, don't be embarrassed. Ask um, if you need to. Also, if you're a note-taker, um, I'm just going to give you a heads up. There's three steps, and the each is one word, and they begin with the letter P, as in Paul. So you guys with your workbooks, at the end of it, you should have three words. With, begin with the letter P, as in Paul. That's a hint. Okay? You guys tracking with me? Okay. Okay. Okay, the first step. As Christians, we care more about relationships than being right when we pray. Pray. That's the first P word, Pray. Praying for other people, not against them. Praying for them. Specifically, thanking God for his working in them and through them. Paul said this in verse 4. He said, I thank my God always when I'm praying for you. And when Paul prayed, he prayed for three things. He, he begins this letter by telling Philemon and the two people mentioned in the greeting, which we assume is his wife and his son, and also to the church that was meeting in his house. So the church is overhearing him say these things. So Paul says, I want you guys to know that I pray for you, Philemon and church, and this is what I pray, but specifically you, Philemon. First of all, he prayed for three things that helps us understand what we should pray for. If we're in a situation that we need to work towards reconciliation, what should we pray for? This Paul's going to give us some hints. First of all, notice Paul's emphasis on giving thanks to God when he prays for Philemon. We see this in verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5, as they go up on the screen there, he says, I thank my God always when I pray for you. I, he, thanksgiving is a regular, consistent part of Paul's prayers for everybody in all the churches. Thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, verse 5, because, why is he thankful? Because, verse 5, I hear of your love and your faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. You hear what he's saying? Paul expresses out loud his thanks to Philemon's demonstration of his devotion both to Christ and to the other Christians. Thus the saints there he's talking about, the other Christians. He recognized that and thanks God for doing that in Philemon. And his prayers for Philemon, Paul is acknowledging that he sees evidence of God's working in him and through him. He wants to remind not only himself and Onesimus, but also wants to remind Philemon and the church, God is doing a great work in you guys. And he's thanking God for that. 
But secondly, he says, even though Philemon has demonstrated his devotion and usefulness, Paul is praying that he would continue to move forward to this and grow. That he wouldn't just be the guy he was, that he would grow more and more mature in this. We see this in verse 6. It's kind of a hard, in English, it's kind of a hard word to phrase to understand, but we'll read it anyways. Verse 6, he says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Kind of awkward English, okay? It's jam-packed with some stuff, though. What is Paul saying? If I could rephrase this prayer, this is what Paul's saying. He goes, I pray for you, Philemon, that you would grow deeper in your understanding of all the benefits we share in Christ. He's saying, and, and Philemon, the more you serve Christ and others, the more you will understand the breadth and depth of the power of the gospel. I'm praying that'll be true for you, Philemon. And then thirdly, we see that Paul prays, he expresses his personal pleasure of God's working in and through Philemon. He rejoices in it. He's happy about it. He says in verse 7, in verse 7, For, for I, have, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Philemon's service uh, had refreshed a lot of people. It's, a little, it's implied there that it refreshed a lot of people who needed refreshment. In other words, they were tired or hurting or persecuted or under some kind of pressure, and Philemon somehow was refreshing them, making them feel better, probably through not only his financial resources, but through the church uh, and his leadership in that church at the time. Paul expects more of the same. Paul expects more of the same. Not only for other Christians, but also by implication in how Philemon will treat Onesimus. One of the things to remember, I don't know if I highlighted it, is that, that Philemon has this letter in his hand because Onesimus showed up and handed it to him. So the, the, the tension is right there in his face. As he's reading this letter to a church, Onesimus is sitting there or standing there, whatever. What does Paul tell us through the step of prayer? What does Paul tell us through the step of prayer? Well, the first step of reconciliation is not to focus on the conflict. It's not to focus on how we're being right or how we've been hurt or all those other things. It's not to focus on the other person in that way, but to see and acknowledge that God is working through, in and through people involved, both sides, both groups. God is working in them. And this does two things, I think, when we start praying this way. And it's a regular part of the way we pray. He says it helps us gain perspective of seeing the situation through a gospel lens. As we go to the other steps, we need to see it through the gospel. When we pray the gospel on those situations, we start looking at it that way. Secondly, it reminds us that God is working in and through us through the same gospel. Uh, we're, when we're involved in this uh, period of reconciliation, working through trying to be uh, uh, getting together with somebody, our hearts need to be changed often as much as the other person's. Praying the gospel on them reminds us of that. It's the same gospel that we want to change them changes us and our hearts also. And it started m- making me think about this this week. What is Jesus doing right now? Did you think about that this week? I did. What? It just occurred to me. Not the only time it's occurred to me, but what is he doing right now? Did you ever think about that? He lived. He rose. I mean, he died. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. What has he been doing for 2,000 years? Is he on sabbatical? Huh? Is he and the Father playing some kind of cosmic tic-tac-toe or bocce, just killing time until the Holy Spirit finishes his work? 
What, what is Jesus doing right now for 2,000 years while the church is here doing what we're supposed to be doing? Well, the church, the scriptures tell us a number of things, but one of the primary things he's doing, can you guess what he's doing? He's praying for us. He's praying for us. Just like we're to pray for other people, he's praying for us right here, right now. For example, in Hebrews 7, Paul says this. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know that it's Paul. The writer of Hebrews says, he is able to save to the uttermost. God is able to save completely at all times. No matter what happens, God is able to get it done. Uh, to those who draw near to God through Christ. And then he goes on. Since, why? Why is we confident that he can do the uttermost and completely? Since he, Christ, always lives to make intercession for them. Let me rephrase that. Because Jesus is always praying for the believers. That's what Jesus is doing. This is important for us to remember as we struggle with sin and when we've blown it again and when we think about the mistakes we've made, the sin, overt sin, the things that we need in our life. We're like, oh no, I've done it again. And up there with the Father, Jesus is saying, hep, there's Rice. He did it again. I don't know why. We've gone through this before, but he did it again. It's okay, Father. He's one of us. I paid the penalty for his sins. He's in the family. Sometimes we're not so sure, but he's in the family. Paul, I mean, Jesus is interceding on our behalf in front of the Father. In Romans, Paul says the same thing. He's struggling in Romans 8 about why people are fearful that they're going to lose this, their time with God and their relationship with God. And he says in Romans 8, he says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a great question. Who? Why, why, what, why, how do you answer that, Paul? He said, if he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he also not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, against the Christians? It's God who justifies. Who's going to condemn? If God justifies us, who's going to condemn us? But then he goes on, as if that was just a court action that happened 2,000 years ago, but there's something happening here now that keeps it the same, that we have that security in Christ. He goes on in verse 34. Christ is the one who died. Even more, he was raised. Then he explains. Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The reason we can say that nothing can separate us from God in Christ, one of the many reasons that Paul goes through there, it's not just one, is that while this is going on, Christ is interceding to the Father. Christ is talking about us to the Father. The gospel, if, you're, if, if we've been in the gospel, if you've heard the gospel, believed in the gospel for years and years, we need to remind ourselves of this. Or if this is new to you, maybe you've never heard the gospel, have not responded to it, we need to remember that the gospel message is not just that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead, which is true and which is the epicenter of the gospel, but also includes that Jesus is continually bringing the needs of the believers to the Father. When we sin as believers, Jesus is reminding the Father that he has already paid the penalty for our sins and we're adopted in the family. Why am I going through all this? Because that's how he wants us to treat other people. Right? Every time in our pride, we value being right over our relationships, even our relationship with God the Father, Jesus is continually praying for us. And he wants us to do the same. That's why it's the first step. It's not just functionally better for us, but it's modeling what Christ is doing for us now in the gospel. The first step in reconciliation is that we pray. The second step is a second step. 
As a Christians, we care more about relationships than being right when we plea. Plea. That's the second P word. Plea. P-L-E-A. Plea. Making a personal appeal, appeal or request, specifically with, with regards to reconciliation. He said, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in prison. I appeal to you. Paul's making a personal plea to Philemon on Onesimus' behalf. The reason he did, he did not come himself with Onesimus is because he's in prison. He can't leave. But instead of just waiting until maybe someday he gets out of prison, we'll do this together, it was urgent enough for him to send Onesimus uh, to, to deal with this uh, in person. Paul sends Onesimus in person to deliver the letter to Philemon, and Paul's insisting that Philemon and Onesimus work this out, and they work this out face to face. They do this in person. Notice how Paul emphasizes the importance of the relationship in this plea. He does three things here that highlights that he and Philemon, he values relationship, and he's asking Philemon. The emphasis here is not what Onesimus has done wrong to you, but on your relationship now with him. First of all, he says in verse 8, see what it says in verse 8? Paul emphasizes the motivation of love. Accordingly, in verse 8, accordingly, though I am bold enough to command to you what is required, verse 9, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. For love's sake, I prefer. Paul is saying, with his authority in the church and his role in the Colossae church, he could insist that Philemon do this. But he's making sure Philemon understands he's not insisting. He's not pulling the authority card at all. He's outright saying that. He's saying, Paul's saying, he's appealing to the motivation of love. His motivation for Philemon. He introduced the letter to Philemon, my beloved brother. That's how Paul feels about Philemon, but also about Philemon's love. In verse 5, we're told that because Paul had heard of his love for all the saints. He obviously had been demonstrating that love. In verse 7, he says, I derived much joy and comfort from hearing of your love, my brother. So Paul is reminding him of the relationship, the motivation for all this is love, not authority, not because you have to, because you want to. It's the right thing to do. As he's already prayed, Paul reminds Philemon of the love as the key, key to their role. Secondly, he emphasizes the relationship by Paul wants Philemon to own the decision he makes and the actions he takes. Paul wants Philemon to own the decisions he makes and the actions he takes. We see this in verses 11 through 14. In verse 11, he says this, Formerly he, he's talking about Onesimus, was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you and to me. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending in my very heart, and I am then glad to keep him with, with me. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on, on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. Then verse 14 is key. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent. In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but on your own accord. He wants Philemon to own this. He's not going to presume on him. In English, the verse 11 is, we miss the play on words. We miss the play. It's actually almost funny in the letter. It's a joke, and I I would imagine the church might have even chuckled or laughed when they read this out loud because we miss it in English. In verse 11, he says, Formerly you were useless. He, he, Onesimus, was useless to you, but now he's indeed useful to you. The, The name Onesimus means useful. 
So, in other words, he's saying before he was not Onesimus, but now he's Onesimus to me and to you. And he's using a play on words there. Onesimus had been very useful and comforting to Paul while he's in prison. Paul said, I could really use his help. It's not easy here. But Paul viewed that his own personal benefit was less important than the direct personal reconciliation of Philemon and Onesimus. That was more important than Paul's own comfort. He was not going to presume on Philemon, even though he may have been able to. He wants Philemon to own his decisions and his actions in his relationship with Philemon. So that's another way. The second way, he emphasized the relationship. The third way, Paul emphasizes the relationship between Philemon and Onesimus in his plea, his request, be reconciled, is this. Paul reminds Philemon of the change in relationship he has with Onesimus. We see this in verses 15 and 16. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Verse 16. No longer a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is implying that God's sovereign hand was involved in this whole situation. This wasn't something that God's scrambling to try to fix. God knew what was going to happen, and God used the events to orchestrate what's happening. If Onesimus had never run away, he may never have been saved. If he had not been, met Paul in the prison, he never would have returned. And Philemon might have always viewed Onesimus simply as a bond slave, a servant. You're one of them. But now he must rethink his relationship with Onesimus. Not just because of Paul's letter, but because of the change. He is now a Christian. He's no longer just a servant, as Paul says, but he's a brother. He's a brother in the Lord. The social and financial circumstances that were, were to take a back seat to the mutual identity they both share in Christ. He says, as a beloved brother, both in the flesh and in the Lord. In the flesh and in the Lord. I think what he's trying to say there, in the Lord, is positionally. You have this common identity. This common identity. In Red Sea, we have our Red Sea pathways. And the gospel changes our identities that leads us to, to, to our mission. And part of our identity is we are servants of Christ, but we're family in Christ. We're family. Our identity is, as believers in Christ is we're family in Christ. That's the positional identity we have. We all are equal in that way. But the, in the flesh, he is your brother both in the flesh and in the Lord. In the flesh means functionally. Um, how we treat each other and the way we work things out. That's why in the pathways, our, 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 the gospel changes our identity. We're family in Christ. Well, what do we do as family? We do peacemaking, we do sharing, and we do celebrating. That's how we're functional unity. It's one thing to say we're the same. It's another thing to live it out. That's what Paul's asking. Paul's making a, a personal plea. And we assume that Onesimus, and, and, we, and we assume so is Onesimus in person. We're assuming that Onesimus behind the letter is agreeing with Paul and is actually having the conversation with Philemon. It's based on their common relationship with Christ now, who they are together in Christ. Their mutual relationship of being what God has done in them, and therefore they should be reconciled. A few years ago, in part of my job, I went to a, a, a different city. Excuse me, and um, and I was meeting with another a pastor uh, of a church, and um, among the other things that we talked about, I asked him why he and his church didn't really participate in the things that CB Northwest did. 
our trainings, our events, and stuff like that. And we talked about a few things, but he indicated that a few years previously, at a CB Northwest event, that Mark Hafner, the executive director, had said something to the group that had offended this pastor. He was offended by what Mark said. And so he had backed away from his relationship with CB Northwest and just stood, uh, didn't withdraw from the association, just didn't participate. Well, I went back to the office, and again, during a staff meeting, I was briefing Mark on some of the things, and I briefed him on this conversation and, and what the man had said about Mark had offended him a few years ago. And what Mark did next caught me by surprise. He says, he, we're in one room, his admin Linda's in another room. He stops, just stops the meeting. Linda, he yells to her so she can hear him. Okay, and he says, contact this pastor by name, the church in the city. He says, today, ask him the soonest convenient time I can get together with him so I can have lunch with him and talk with him. And if you have to change my calendar to make it happen, do that. And I'll be honest with you, I'm standing there listening to him do this. And I'm trying to process what he's doing. I have to be honest with you. I'm not sure I would have done it. I'm not sure I would have done what he just did. I'm thinking, okay, this offense happened years ago. It's old news. It's old news. Why bring it up now? I'm also thinking, listen, this other guy has the issue. If he has the issue with me, it's his responsibility to come to me, not me to chase him down. If he's got a problem, he's got to deal with it. That's my attitude. Okay, maybe, maybe I should reach out to him. I'll pop on off an email to him when it's convenient. Okay, and I'll try not to be too offensive with my email. Or maybe if I really feel compelled for personal contact, I'll give him a call. I'll give him a call when it's convenient, maybe when I'm driving long distances, have nothing to do, I need to stay awake, I'll call him and say, hey, I hear you have a problem with me, what's up? Or something like that. I'm known for my tact. But I am confident at that time I would have not taken a whole day to to, to drive to a different city to have a conversation with him. For Mark, reconciling the relationship with this man quickly was more important than being right. Mark had never intended to offend this person, but he did. So Mark was going to own it make the explanations and clarifications that were necessary, and apologize in person, ASAP, as soon as possible. Personally face, personal face-to-face reconciliation was more important to Mark than the inconvenience and the financial cost of spending a whole day for a lunch conversation. My struggle with, at the time, was I'm not sure it was worth it to me. That's something I've had to wrestle with. Where did Paul and Mark learn the importance of face-to-face pleas of reconciliation? Where did they get this idea? God and Jesus, right? The key aspect of the gospel is the incarnation. Big word alert, big word alert, okay? This is one of those words we throw around a lot. We assume people know. Incarnation. It's a theological word. It's not strictly from the scriptures. It means in the flesh, basically. In the flesh. God does not have a body, but 
He didn't have a body, but then he decided that he was going to. And so God the Father sent the Son to uniquely take on a human body in order that he can communicate and identify with people so that he could save them. That's the incarnation. God became in the flesh. God came face to face. God came to humanity face to face. And, and, and that's what Jesus did. He came. He, God could have made some grand pronouncement from heaven. Okay, I forgive everybody. Done. He didn't. He sent his son to live and to die and rise. To speak to people. To know people. To feel what it means to be human. And to not only declare the message of the kingdom, but to personally call people to respond in repentance and faith. In his letter to Philippians, Paul talks about this. He says, you know what? You guys, Philippians, you guys should have the same attitude as Jesus. And then he goes on and says, this is what it looks like. And he describes the incarnation. How, how, how God, Jesus was God, but he didn't hang on to his godness, but he let it go and humility became one of us so he could serve us even to the point of dying for us. Paul's telling us, and this is what he's telling Philippians, this is why we do this, because that's the way God treats us. The gospel involves a personal plea of reconciliation and requires a personal plea of reconciliation. As Christians, we pray more about the relationships than being right when first step was to pray, the second step was to plea, and there's a third step. And actually, this is probably the hardest step. They progressively get more costly. And the third step is to promise. Promise. That's the third P. Promise. We commit to do whatever it takes to prove that the relationships are more valuable than being right. Where do we get this? We get this in verse 18. Look at verse 18. And if he, Onesimus, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. Verse 19. I, Paul... Write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of your own me, even your very self. Philemon was wronged by Onesimus. He was. Onesimus had run away, abandoning his duties and responsibilities. In that culture, this has probably had caused Philemon some public embarrassment. It has implications on him. He had to deal with that. Onesimus had stolen from Philemon. Whether money or property, we're not sure, but that's probably how he financed his trip to Rome. Either way, he had stolen from him. The point is that Philemon would be right in condemning Onesimus. He would be right in, if he wanted, retribution and punishment of Onesimus. Culturally and legally, he had those rights. Paul is saying, I want you to overlook those rights. But Paul's not saying that they shouldn't be not unmet. Paul acknowledges that he had these rights, but asks Philemon to charge him, Paul, not Onesimus, for the charge. See that in verse 19? I write this with my own hand. I will repay. That I write in my own hand? He's not referring that I'm writing this letter to my own hand. Timothy probably did that. He's saying he took the letter from Timothy when he was writing it and signed his name as a promissory note. He now has, Philemon now has a, says from Paul himself in his own handwriting, I will repay any debt. You think I'm serious? Here's a contract. That's what he's doing. Why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Why is Paul 
going to risk and, in his situation, promising to pay somebody else's debt so that they can get reconciled. He's promising that. Paul wants to remove any possible barrier towards their reconciliation. If any debt is going to be continually hang over Onesimus' head, then Paul wants them gone. So much so that he's committing to take care of it himself. Paul is demonstrating the value that relationship is more important than being right. This sometimes is referred to as restitution. Restitution. We, we, we have, a, in our culture, have a different understanding of restitution than some of the biblical understandings of that is. Restitution is, if I steal something, a hundred bucks from somebody, I repay them a hundred bucks. I make restitution. I give back what I, I have stolen. And that's true. Compensating for somebody for a loss or a damage or an injury. I do what I can to pay them back. But biblically, there's a concept with restitution that goes more than that. It's more than that. The biblical purpose is not just to offset the loss, but it's to communicate the importance of reestablishing the relationship once it's been harmed. Okay? Restitution is paying back what you have stolen, whether at the time it was goats or money or time or love or intimacy. You fill in the blank. If I steal something, I need to give back what I stole and more. Why the and more? We, when we give back more, we communicate that we care more for the other person than we do the sin that divided us. When we pay back what we stole, if we pay back just what we stole, all we're saying is, I got caught. That, that, not, that's, I'm not real happy about that. But to make this go away, I'll give you back some of your money. That's not what the biblical concept is. The biblical concept is, I got caught. I stole some of your goats. I sold some of your money. I stole 100 bucks. I'm going to give you $200 back. Why? Because I want you to know that the relationship is more important than the money I stole. I changed my mind. I'm going to keep giving you hundreds of dollars until you say, okay, okay, stop. I get it. You, 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 you trust me, and, and I trust you that you really believe in that. If you stole goats, if you stole time, if you stole whatever you stole, you give back more to say, I'm investing in you in this relationship, even if it costs me a lot. Remember Zacchaeus? Jesus goes to his house, and they're eating stuff, and Zacchaeus gets saved, and what does he say? If I had stole anything, I'll repay it, and I'll pay it back four times as much. Why? He wants to know, I get this grace thing. I get this gospel thing. I am going to, if I have ripped people off, which we had, it's a tax collector, I'm going to make sure they know that this is more important than the money I stole from them. I'm going to pay back four times as much. That's a lot. Restitution contributes to restoring the trust in the relationship. That's why Paul is saying this. That's the most important thing. Like the previous two steps, this step of reconciliation reflects the truth of the gospel. Paul told Philemon, if he has wronged you in any way, if he owes you anything, I will repay it. Jesus said to God the Father, if they, Royce, Monica, Josh, Jamie, you fill in your name at that point, have wronged you in any way, Father, or owe you anything, Charge it to my account. I will repay it. That's what the gospel says. Jesus wrote a, a promissory note too, but he didn't sign it with a signature, did he? He signed it with his blood. He died to prove 
that that was going to be true. It says, the scripture says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He removed the sin so that we can be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be no sin who knew no, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might come the righteousness of God. What's, what's really more magnificent about the gospel isn't that Jesus says, I'll pay their debt of their sin, and if they do any more, I'll continue to pay. What the gospel says is what that verse is saying to us is at the time of the cross, when we receive the, go- the message of the gospel, respond and repent of faith, and that's credited to us, not only all our sin, the payment, the huge debt we owe God removed, but God then deposited an inheritance, an, um, an unlimited inheritance into our spiritual account. So Jesus doesn't wait for us to rack up more debt. He basically funds it up front with an unlimited spiritual account. That's where we're from. We can't outgive God in those things. We can't demand more of God than he already has. As I thought about this week, not only does each step of this letter of reconciliation describe the gospel, as I tried to highlight, but think about what Paul did himself in this letter, how he handled the situation. This wasn't Paul's debt. This wasn't even Paul's problem. Paul wasn't even in the city. Paul didn't do, have anything to do with this other than their fellow Christians. And yet, he stepped in and he got between Onesimus and Philemon to make sure they got reconciled together. Onesimus had wronged Philemon and deserved punishment. Instead, Paul personally steps in to act as a mediator in order to reconcile the two men. He, he, um, he's just living out in his life what Jesus has done for us. We have wronged God and we deserve punishment, but instead, the gospel says that Jesus came, stepped in between the Holy Father and us, and as a mediator, reconciled us together. Paul was living out in his life the message of the gospel. It's not the gospel, but he's, he's saying that. In fact, Paul often in his letters will say something, so follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul is modeling how he lived, how he related to people, his relationships on the gospel and how Christ related to him. This is one reason why we celebrate communion every week, to remind ourselves of this gospel, to remind ourselves that God has stepped in to not only history, but our very lives, to act as a mediator between us and the Holy Father, to bring us, reconcile us to him. We celebrate communion every week to remind us of the generosity of God towards us in Christ, to remind us that we are once and for all reconciled to God in Christ. But taking communion also is to remind us of something else. It's a time of reflection. It's a time for us to say, like with Paul, follow my example as I follow Christ. Communion sometimes, receiving communion, is a time to challenge ourselves. It's time to reflect the theme of Paul's letters, follow my examples, I follow Christ, as he demonstrated in his letter to Philemon. Are there, I want you to think about this as you prepare to receive communion, as I close this message. Spend a, a few seconds, just going to spend a few seconds thinking about this. Are there people in your life that you need to be reconciled to? Are there people in your life that you need to be reconciled to? If there is a strain or even especially a break of relationship, Ask yourself the question, is being right more important than the relationship? 
Is being right more important than relationship? And if so, take a few minutes before you go up and receive communion to think about what it would look like for you to pray, to plea, and to promise in a way that would reconcile that relationship. Take a few seconds right now to think about that. And as you think about that, I'm inviting, if you've responded to the gospel message that Christ died for our sins with repentance and faith, you're a follower of Christ, as we continue our time of worship, I invite you to come up and take, receive communion, take some of the bread representing his body, break it off, dip it into the wine or juice, whatever is appropriate for you, and take that. Come with yourself, come with your family, maybe even come with the person that you need to be reconciled with, and be blessed by the gospel. Think about that for a, seconds and a few seconds, and then I'll pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ and through faith in Christ we can approach you with freedom and confidence. I pray as we think through our relationships, our times, maybe even needs of reconciliation, we can do so experiencing your freedom and confidence we have in Christ as we take steps forward for reconciliation. We thank you in your precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.